0: Hi, everybody, Uh, I'm Dr. Randy Bach. Uh, Today's February 16, 2022, and I'm thrilled to have a special guest with uh, me. Uh, As you can see, Dr. Richard Uh, Amerling. He is all that, he's distinguished. Uh, He's uh, an internist, I believe, a nephrologist and former professor. And he's been literally on the front line of the battle uh, against COVID to the point in which uh, I think the organization is uh, uh, frontline uh, doctors. But he'll be able to fill you in a little bit. I don't like to overintroduce because I never know as much about um, our interviewees as they do themselves. So uh, why don't you take it away, Richard? Tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Okay, Randy. Well, a quick uh, review is that. After graduating medical school in 81, I did internship, residency, fellowship in New York and Philadelphia, started my real career in 1990 at Beth Israel Medical Center in downtown New York, Mm -hmm. interestingly, right across the street from my old high school. Stiverson. Stiverson, yes.
0: Yeah, and I'm Horace Mann. So uh, we, yeah. I think we, I graduated '81 as well uh, from medical school. So I think we're uh, reasonable contemporaries.
1: Yeah, very good, very good. Well, you know, we're, both, have to looking, catch up later. we're both looking young, Randy. So we're yeah, doing exactly. like exactly. Uh, and I had a wonderful career there as an academically oriented clinical nephrologist, specializing in all areas of nephrology. Including acute kidney injury, chronic kidney disease, dialysis of all types. And I uh, was very happy. Then Mount Sinai took over the hospital in around 2014, 2015 and proceeded to destroy the place and convert it over to their medicine by numbers approach. And I mm. just was not going to have it. And looking for an exit strategy, I was taking the subway uptown one day and I spotted an ad for St. George's University in the subway. And I that's said, "That's in the
0: Caribbean." it's in the
1: Caribbean, and they yeah. had this, this picture of the campus, which was gorgeous, with a backdrop of the ocean. And I said, "Maybe that's my exit strategy," <laughs> uh-huh. since I love the water, I love the sail. Uh-huh. So I put in an application. They were interviewing for a, a an associate professor, which was my rank at the time. And I went down after several months went by. Went down there, interviewed, and uh, toured the place. Uh, and they offered me a position as a full professor with a top salary. And I said, yeah, let's do it. And one one of my reasons for going down there was that I have known for years, I've watched it all happen, that medicine was going off the rails. And I felt like there wasn't very much I was going to be able to do as a practicing physician. But if I could teach the next generation and show them a bit about what it's like to be a real doctor, then maybe would, there would be hope. And St. George's, I don't know if you know, is one of the biggest medical schools in the world. Uh, we, I, I would regularly teach in front of seven, hundred, eight eight or 900 students at a time. Wow. So, And they're the biggest provider of resident doctors to the United States. Hmm. So e- everyone I've seen the, I've seen
0: the name over the years and I'm sure I've worked with people.
1: I'm sure you uh, have.
0: I saw a quote I'm today. Sure I'm wondering, maybe you can touch on this. Uh, uh, just happened to show up on my feed or whatever. Um, said in school, uh, people uh, take lessons and then they're tested. And in real life, uh, there are invariably tests that give us lessons. Um, I'm wondering uh, whether that factored into you know, maybe the teaching approach you might have had.
1: Well, I'm uh, above all a clinician, and I, I jumped at the idea of being able to teach these, these students. I felt it was really an honor to be able to be in front of all these uh, young Uh, You know, almost Uh doctors and have a say in how they were going to uh, become physicians. I found straight away that they were not being taught as I would have wanted, shall we say. Uh There was tons of memorization, and even the approach to clinical diagnosis, which is what I was uh, teaching, was very formulaic. Uh And there wasn't much in the way of what we referred to as clinical reasoning. Uh-huh. And frankly, I introduced that at St. George's University. In oh, other words, they were taught how to address a patient. Uh, they they all asked, how should I address you? In other words, Ms., Mrs., whatever. Uh-huh. That's a question that I have never asked a patient in my entire career, uh-huh. all right? I mean, I just—it's automatic in a way. You 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 treat them with utmost respect. They were taught techniques to show empathy. Again, we never learned that, did you? I don't think so. We, we well, were empathetic. You know, we, 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 we. I
0: went to University of Rochester, and we were uh, the um, George Engel had the psychosocial model, and we were taught to ask, uh, you know, less pointed questions so so i still use some of them right? we don't say um do you have a wife we'd say who's at home with you so we'd leave open-ended questions that patients could could use the flow with um but you know i would kind of like to gravitate towards some of your um thoughts and and about kind of what what this whole approach means i mean uh, you've you've have an article and I've, I've read it twice now, um, recently, uh, yesterday, a little bit today as well. And a couple you know, a few months ago, um, about evidence-based medicine Now, evidence-based medicine, you know, it's sort of like, um, you know, I don't know, sunny days and, and, uh, clear sailing. I mean, it, it just seems like an obvious thing that everyone would want to be on board with. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a, a kind of a separate, you know, there are many, many wars out in the world. And one of them is a war on words and with words and, and who gets kind of to stake the high ground with certain types of phrasing. And so how can anyone be against evidence-based medicine? And how did that play in to either your role as professor or thereafter?
1: Yeah, evidence-based medicine, the, the name is, of course, very deceptive. And when you look at it very closely, you realize that it's not a very scientific approach to medicine at all but it replaced a scientific approach to medicine that we had been practicing successfully for a generation. Uh Uh, So evidence-based medicine started in the 90s. Uh, Guyatt and Sackett were the principal proponents up in Canada. And they were looking to introduce more rationality into the practice of medicine by incorporating what they called best practices Uh and best evidence, the best evidence And then, of course, best practice was whatever used best evidence, which was basically whatever used evidence-based medicine. So you're saying it's
0: circular logic. It's
1: circular, right?
0: Well, Uh, there's got to be some evidence someplace. um, But you know, the 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 worry I have, and I've read your article, so I don't want to preempt what you're going to say. I'd like you to say it to our audience. um, But you know, I think there's, uh, you know, off the top of my head, the comparison came, uh, however you might stand on something, you know, whatever it's global warming, global cooling, climate change, climate, whatever. It seems to me that there's some similarity in the sense that, um, you know, there's there, there are, consens, you know, consensi, there's a consensus and multiple consensuses of, of opinion and those tend to form and they can, in a sense, congeal in the academy and, and it's really hard to have an opinion outside of those. And some of the evidence gets to be that everyone is in agreement on something, but it may just actually not, act, you know, frankly, be the case. And I, I don't know if, if that. I, I don't, I don't want to jump to conclusions and, and, you know, put words in your mouth. But I'm just curious, you know, h- how do we know there's problems with evidence based medicine? What do you see as it and, and, and as those problems? And when we say the scientific aspect of, phys- of being a physician, how do we know we were being scientific before evidence based medicine? So that's a very packed question. You can take it as you will.
1: There are several real problems. The first of which, well, by the way, you mentioned consensus, and of course, consensus isn't science, uh, and that should never be used as an argument. <clears throat> period. Evidence is not science, where evidence is something that we refer to in the scientific method, mm-hmm. but evidence can always be found or created mm-hmm. to support any notion, any hypothesis. So pure evidence is meaningless. And I put in my article uh, the example that I know that you'll understand. I don't know if everybody in the audience will, but that according to the evidence, Paul McCartney has been dead since 1966. Uh, So those of you who don't know about that, look it up. Okay, it's a fascinating story. But of course, Paul still very much with us. that's the kind of thing that I that I get at and evidence based medicine created a hierarchy of evidence mm-hmm. which is arbitrary yeah. and at the top they initially put the randomized controlled trial the rct and at the bottom clinical experience and mm-hmm. which they call anecdotes mm-hmm. and this to me is insulting because clinical experience is the foundation of medicine we we base everything on our clinical experience and then we we layer science into it and that's how we always approach things.
0: So I'm I'm going to play devil's advocate for you or Please with do. you. Um, Please. You know, it's, it's hard, you know, clearly we don't just sui gen, you know, we don't uh, kind of like pop out of Zeus's, um, um, you know, mind uh, fully formed as physicians. You know, we, we are, are, you know, carriers of received information from medical school and we take that a certain amount on faith and, you know, um, and, and over time, we get a workable knowledge of that based on, on you know, if you have somebody with high blood pressure, uh, you give them a pill, they come back next week, their blood pressure is lower. So you can kind of see that that pill did that thing. You know, whether, whether you know, treating blood pressure or whether blood pressure is an actual illness or just kind of a, a data set that coincides with, you know, certain secondary problems, which might be collinear with high cholesterol or you know, uh, heart failure, so forth. That's another story. So, you know, I I, I, t- I, tend to wake up skeptical, go to sleep skeptical. I spend my day skeptical. And so I start to question all those things. I don't think a lot of those things are questioned. But, you know, again, so to come to a question here, um, we are not merely, uh, you know, kind of scientific receptors ourselves. We are filtering things. And a lot of what we, you know, have our, as our basis is the, the language of medical school. And that presumably was from that same kind of consensus forming one level or another so how how were things better say if we i'm not sure they were but how were were things better when we were trained and how uh, are things worse and how are things better or worse as people are practicing now
1: well i for one got a very strong basic science foundation Mm -hmm. and to me that is still the essence of Scientific medicine. If you don't understand the basic sciences, you're going to have a tough time thinking outside the box, shall we say, and mm-hmm. being creative yep. uh, regarding patient diagnosis and treatment. So I think that that is being given short shrift now. By the way, mm-hmm. I think that that is being that has been so compressed that very few students get any anything more than a very superficial understanding of the basic basic sciences. And mm-hmm. in a way, I think that that is by design. I think that the uh, powers that be, which to me is industry, big pharma, they, they control most everything, including medical education. They don't really want scientist physicians. They want providers who will click on boxes and prescribe. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're producing. And it's a very sad state of affairs. And medicine is suffering and patients are suffering as a result of this. Uh, you know, scientific medicine. Which is what we always practice. For example, I give this to the students. Someone comes into the emergency room. They've got a fever of 103. They've been coughing up yellowish junk. Uh, they're a little having a little trouble breathing. They have some chest pain that increases when they take a deep breath. And you do a chest, you do an exam, and you find uh, that they've got bronchial breath sounds and egophony, uh-huh. on you know, a certain portion of their chest. Right. You have them uh, cough up some junk. You put it under a microscope. You do a Gram stain. You do a Gram stain. You put it under a microscope, and you see these little purplish uh, dots. Gram positive diplococci. You have made a diagnosis of pneumococcal pneumonia
0: mm-hmm. with
1: a minimum of time and effort. Right. You then prescribe some sort of a penicillin type derivative, and they get better. Is that not scientific medicine in its purest form? Do you need guidelines to know how to do that? No, of course not. This is how we practiced in the old days. We actually used to do the Gram stains. Didn't no, no, I've
0: that? I've done I've done lots of you know, I've had patients remark like uh, you know, I I always spun the urines and, you know, I I could tell people's, you know, urinary fac- infections right then and there. I didn't have to wait yeah. for cultures. And yeah. um, you know, you can you can do a fair amount on a clinical basis. You know, <clears throat> science is is a tricky proposition and I don't want to spend all of our hour on this topic per se, but you know, science is two basic things. There's the scientific method, and there's the science. So, so science means two. So science basically is, I think, Greek for knowledge. Um, <clears throat> but it's two basic things. There's the scientific method, which is proposal, hypothesis, and then verification by experimentation, and then you know, rinse, uh, excuse me, lather, rinse, repeat. You know, so it's, it keeps iteratively moving towards you know, a closer approximation of reality uh, if, in fact, there's open testing and open experimentation and open review of those facts. So, so you know, ideally, the peer-reviewed uh, world will be, you know, getting closer and closer to, uh, you know, the seven blind men and the elephant coming with the totality of, of all those seven blind men's, uh, you know, opinion of what an elephant is and they they get a sense of it and clearly there's been enormous progress you know with or despite any of these issues through the medical academy because we are better at a lot of things than we ever used to be i mean we don't apply leeches uh, to the same extent although i do think there are aspects of current day medicine which are like that and i th- i kind of want to get to the the crux of 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 your uh centrality in, in the covid um, uh, discussion about that, but but you know so science is that the scientific method, and then science is also the stuff that we've accumulated from the scientific method. We also call science, so we you know respect the science. Da, 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 da. But I, I I agree with you that science is not consensus, and science you know is always challengeable, and 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 people you know you shouldn't question the science. That's idiotic because the you know, the whole part C above part one of the scientific process is challenging the science and and galileo challenged the science um you know uh, einstein challenged the science newton challenged the science and everybody who's a scientist or you know is, is expecting to do that should be expected to be challenged as well um and and it always has to be i, I think you know what we've seen again this is kind of a leading question i apologize but what i think what we've seen with covid is you know don't challenge this you're going to be taken down if you think this and and this is not right because the science is is some kind of like in a sense, a religious scroll that's being read from on high by, you know, uh, a scarf-wearing doctor or um, some guy who's been in the institution, uh, you know, of the NIAID for, for decades and so forth. And and anything they say is the science. I think, you know, I, I don't I don't buy into that. And clearly, whatever they say, you know, changes time to time. So I think there's kind of a, like a religious aspect and an aspect in which we follow um, more than part. And I understand that because not everyone's really made, you know, to, to, to be able to, to judge the various, you know, methods and things like that. So um, so here's my question. So how did, how did your, uh, we'll call it skepticism and active mind and, and uh, scientific acumen uh, play into your positions currently and, and where have they led you and, and what are your uh, perceptions about how things were handled in regard to our COVID-19 response?
1: Well, that was a lengthy intro to the question. and I, yeah, I I'm really sorry. Hardest. I'm
0: sorry. I don't mean to take your, your, your thunder here.
1: But uh, look, when I first started to see guidelines into, mm-hmm. emerge into clinical practice, I became immediately suspicious. It, to me, a red flag went up because why do we need these? Uh, where do they come from? I started to question them immediately, and I wrote some articles on it very early on in the 2000s. When they first started to appear in nephrology. And I went I, as I looked into it, it became very clear that these were consensus statements from panelists that were selected based on their allegiance to big pharma. When you looked at the financial disclosures, they were all getting paid by big pharma and they therefore always came down on the side of recommending, uh, more and more treatments, right? Yeah. So, uh, uh, so to me, it was a form of advertising, mm-hmm. But and I wrote about this. I have several articles you can look up. I also was involved in many debates versus my colleagues who were pro-guideline. I was anti-guideline. I won every debate. Yeah, Clearly, where did, that, big get you? Margin. Where did that get you? They're winning the war because yeah. guidelines have come to dominate medicine, and that is how. So health. can you
0: give us an example of... of- Guidelines gone wrong. Um, you okay,
1: know. sure. Yeah, yeah always. Uh, very simple. Uh, hypertension. The, the hypertension guidelines, as written by the Joint National Committee and updated every three or four years, uh, continuously lower what they consider to be normal blood pressure. Mm-hmm. And they continuously upgrade what they treat. So in the old days, you know, maybe 10 years ago, A blood pressure of 140 over 90, they would say, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, lifestyle modification, diet, exercise, lose some weight, et cetera. Now they say 140 over 90. Oh, my God, you you got to be on a couple of drugs. Plus, they tell you what drugs to prescribe. Now, to to my view, uh, this is wrong. They don't acknowledge that you can get a blood pressure too low. They they say hypertension (laughs) is a continuum of risk. So the lower you can get the pressure, the better. And that's clearly not true. No, because you get to a not true. point where people fall down. No, it's absolutely it. like, you
0: know, a, a giraffe has, has enormous b- blood pressure, uh, but it's there for a purpose because he's a giraffe, you know, so he needs at times. I mean, frankly, it's an amazing thing, the giraffe. And I've actually looked this up. Um, you know, when he goes down to, to chew something on the ground, uh, his if he had the same blood pressures when his head is up, his, his head would pretty much explode. I mean, blood <laughs> would be pouring out of his eyes. So they have an incredible valvular uh, mechanism. Uh, Again, look up giraffes. You know, every, all my audience. Well, i read
1: about, about giraffes.
0: Yeah, but it's incredible. So, so, the, but, but he has an enormous blood pressure because he's, you know, I don't know what he is—12, uh, 15 feet tall or something like that—and, um, you know, so we always need a certain amount of blood pressure and to, you know, get blood to your noggin and if you lower it you know keep lowering it 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 obviously depresses you physically uh, in a couple different ways you know the actual you know you have a slower (laughs) response getting up from a chair and all that kind of stuff you know so i I agree with that you know i don't mean to get on the case of, of blood pressure per se but it's always bothered me that hypertension itself is actually not an illness i mean tuberculosis is an illness we'll we'll you know, I think everyone can pretty much accept that. You have a case of tuberculosis, even if it's quiescent, you know, sitting in a little granuloma, it has the possibility of opening up, whatever. But active TB, I don't think anybody can argue was an illness. You have this thing, you don't take care of it, it's going to kind of eat you up, boom, 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 kind of like cancer, whatever. So there's certain things that are very blatantly illnesses. But but hypertension all along has been just what I call a collinearity. It, it It's there because, and we're treating it because we associate it with, you know, heart failure or uh, stroke and that kind of stuff. So, but there are other things we associate with that. I mean, I think frankly, the, the, the basis is, you know the kind of the, the, the diminishment of the gauge of your arteries which is age, cholesterol, et cetera, uh, diabetes, so forth. And, and I, I, you know, w- what we're seeing and we're measuring is this, is this blood pressure. If we didn't have sphygmomanometers out there, you know, we could still be treating cholesterol and we could still be treating diabetes. I'm not sure we'd necessarily be losing that much. We'd have this, you know, so anyway. any rate, the, you know, the blood pressure in and of itself, in itself is, is in a way kind of a part and parcel of this kind of push towards treatment. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that one. You're a nephrologist. You yeah, know sure. I've
1: been treating things. hypertension my entire career and it's, being, it's treated as a risk factor. Now, I have no problem treating significant hypertension in patients with chronic kidney disease or acute kidney disease. And that's uh, very clearly beneficial but when you're talking about drug treatment of mild to moderate hypertension, the benefits tend to be diminishing and quite small. And they get amplified by using this trickery that they call relative risk reduction. So, you know, you go from, uh, let's say, a heart attack, and, and they, this is done with statins too, by the way, and also the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine, also tr- uh, based on relative risk reduction numbers, the va- so called vaccine efficacy. But to give your listeners an example, let's say Lipitor, uh, you give that to one group and you give a a placebo to the other group, and after a few years, you see how many people got heart attacks. And if in the Lipitor group, uh, only two out of 100, let's say, got a heart attack, and in the placebo group, three out of 100 got a heart attack, that is clearly a 1% risk reduction Mm -hmm. over a number of years. But if you divide one by three, right, thirty-three percent relative risk right. reduction. Yeah, no, that, that's how they advertise the drug.
0: Right, I know. What do they say? There's lies, damn lies, and statistics. Um, people, uh, I, I, I've learned this from Michael Knowles, who I, I, I podcast. Um, but you know, the derivation of the word statistics is is from the state, and uh, I think in the origin, origins of use of statistics it was there for state-oriented um, persuasion. You know, and we've seen a lot of that going on lately. And I'm wondering whether you might uh, speak to state-oriented persuasion and how that factors into best medical advice. And maybe we'll kind of, because this is a, ostensibly a coronavirus conversation, I'd like to, to segue into your, your approach and your, your experiences with uh, the coronavirus um, controversial adoption of, of treatment, lockdowns, and so forth.
1: Well, my thesis is that the acceptance of evidence-based medicine empowered official bodies to come out with guidelines that become uh, orders. Mm -hmm. And and I warned about this many years ago when I talked Mm -hmm. about guidelines. I said, once you put out a guideline, you have no control over what is done with it. And when these official bodies come out with guidelines, they can be used. By payers, by the state, and then and then the state has their own bodies, mm-hmm. the WHO, uh, the NIH, and they come out with guidelines, and to give them credence as the power of law that enables them to dictate treatment to everybody, right? No exception. And then it becomes corruptible. I mean, Lord, you know, to, to give out another quick,
0: quickie, you know, Lord Acton uh, said, you know, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. So I think, I think, I think, you know, if I'm reading this, reading the room correctly, you know, what you're saying is with an agglomeration of power, uh, it might be for the good, but it also could be for the expedient. And humans, you know, we are fallen creatures and, and we are corruptible in a sense. And I think, uh, you know, it's impossible, you know, not to figure out a world where people don't game any situation. So if there are, ways in which, you know, the, the the rules for treatment come from on high, that th- that is probably an easier lever for big power players to get everybody, you know, have a unanimity of treatment and or direction versus having to convince, you know, in a more political sense, you know, millions of individual physicians, or I'm not sure how many there are hundreds of thousands or maybe a couple million physicians, you know, who were, you know, say, like, you know, trying to herd cats, you know, I think medicine was probably more like that originally where people were trying to herd I always say that carefully because I don't want to hurt cats um, but herding cats is is a, a a much more difficult prospect than herding uh, sheep or herding cattle and and if you have everybody corralled uh, it's very easy to lead them one way or another um, so I think you know it's a little bit like politics in the sense that you know a political system you know our founders were able to figure out i think the closest to perfect system of checks and balances and separation of powers and because the, the the urge to power and the urge to control is a natural human instinct and they were cautious about concentrating that in any given person or personage or, or, or branch um, but in medicine as power gets consolidated I think you know what if I'm reading you correctly, is is what we're predicting is kind of a consolidation of power and more directive from on high. And the schooling such as it is will be like schooling of fish, where, you know, all the fish follow in one direction because of the incentives, you know, of of what we have medically.
1: Yeah, well, power does corrupt. And of course, these guideline committees, no matter where they are, are subject to uh, conflicts of interest. They all are, and even the official organizations that are supposed to be safeguarding us, like the FDA and the CDC and the NIH, uh, are all paid off in many ways by pharma. If you wanna you know, go chapter and verse on this, everybody should read RFK Jr.'s book on Fauci, because he goes into this in a lot of detail, how, how it actually works, how the okay. sausage is actually made. But one of the points that I would always make in my talks about the dangers of guidelines is that if you make a mistake in your practice, mm-hmm. you might harm one patient. And mm-hmm. you could probably call that patient up and bring him back in and fix whatever you did. If you make a mistake in a guideline, you can, you're going to be affecting thousands, millions of people. Mm-hmm. And this is exactly what we are seeing now. The the VAX rollout is a one-size-fits-all policy. It's yes, so I agree extreme. with you. No,
0: it it's, it's so a extreme. craziness. <laughs> and not only that, you know, to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Uh, we have this magical thing. I mean, I, I get I. I think the vaccine was awesome uh in, in its production, its rollout and having it come out within a year. I, I've been writing a book and I finished a book on Zika and it's coming out next month. Um, You know, they're still looking, hunting for the Zika vaccine. People were told not to have children throughout the Americas until there's a vaccine. Now, this is like six, seven years later. There's been no vaccine. Everyone. Theoretically, if they listened to their governmental officials and WHO and so forth, there'd be no kids in in Brazil, you know, under under, under eight years old uh, right now. Fortunately, they didn't. But, you know, they were told to wait for vaccine. So there's been no Zika vaccine. And that's not for lack of trying. They poured a billion dollars into it and whatnot. So I appreciate that a vaccine was made and was made with new technology and has been a whole delivery and production. But once it was there. It's, it should have been focused on actual COVID-19, which was from 2019, China Wuhan flu. And as the variants came along, they've, been, they've clearly diverged uh, from the ancestral strain. And, and but the vaccine hasn't. You know, we uh, the the monoclonals come specific for Delta, Beta, Alpha. They, the, you know, the injectable vaccine in the sense. I mean, it's not really a vaccine, but the injectable antibodies equivalent to what would be produced by a vaccine for that have been changed. Let me say this more clearly. So the the monoclonal antibodies are are approved and given only for for specifically a given strain, alpha, beta, gamma, omicron, whatever, delta. Um, But and then they get pulled from the market, whereas we're still giving a vaccine which produces in us a monoclonal strain of antibodies against the spike protein, but for the original ancestral version. So there's really no logic to it. Um, I, I think it would be awesome to have had, you know, before COVID-19 hit us in 2020, but we didn't. But once it came out, fine. I think it's really helped a lot of old people and people with more comorbidities. But but it has to be, you know, not one size fits all. I've been, you know, ranting and raving about this uh, for a long time. You know, giving it to kids at all is absurd because they don't get sick from COVID-19 or COVID twenty or COVID twenty one, if they were you know appropriately named as time goes on, um, and but that's always been the process. So this guideline part, I mean, you can see really the flaws because they've they've emphasized, and I think your article covers this in a way. They've emphasized you know certain treatments which are expensive modern treatments, whether the monoclonal antibodies or remdesivir, if I'm saying it correctly, and but but not the inexpensive generic ones. And this has always been a problem throughout medicine. Um, You know, amantadine was not a perfect medication for influenza, but everyone poo-pooed it because there was Tamiflu. That was the expensive one. And I think there are a lot of ways in which treatment has superseded reality. Um, And again, I'm I'm monopolizing. I apologize. But, you know, my experience uh, was in part with detoxing narcotic addicts. And I did a a a four-month tapering program to sobriety. And... Part, you know, but that is inimical to the guide and, guideline part, which says addiction is a disease. They should be on treatment forever. So this this aligns with what you're saying, because methadone and or suboxone uh, are pharmaceuticals. And and the idea is you give anybody who's ever had experience with narcotics that medication forever. We certainly don't do that with alcoholics. And probably the only reason is we, we don't prescribe alcohol. We don't have prescription power over alcohol. Anyway, so so getting back with COVID, you know, we're... we're you know, when did you put your ore in the water? How did you do it? And, and what has been your experience?
1: To be honest, Randy, the shots, I won't even call them vaccines, never worked. Uh, when you look at the actual study data, it's so porous and so horribly done. These studies are awful. They had a minimal, if any, effect The absolute risk reduction, for example, for Pfizer was 0.7%. When you see a number like that, to me, it means they don't work. Uh, They also had higher number of deaths than they reported in their initial study. When they rolled out the six-month data for Pfizer, they had 21 deaths in the active group versus 17 in placebo group. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, was not reported to the FDA initially when they got the EUA. So they never really worked against the original strain and they don't work at all against these other strains. And in fact, they're negative efficacy, meaning they make you more likely to get sick. Mm -hmm. And that's clearly shown in the Israeli and the the UK data and the, Mm -hmm. the Danish data at this point too. So I don't think they ever worked. So I was skeptical from the very beginning and I wanted to see more evidence. Of course, I wanted to see more studies and I refused to take the shot. And when my wonderful university imposed a a vaccine mandate, I argued very strenuously against it, but I could not convince them. I pointed out, even back in the early spring of of 2021, that every country that had rolled out the shots in a big way experienced a big spike in cases, hospitalizations, and death, and that they were courting that kind of a scenario in Grenada if they pushed hard on the shot. Well, I lost the argument. They pushed mm. the shots. They went from zero COVID to over 1,000 cases in very short order, mm. and from one death to over 200 deaths. So uh, really horrific. Mm. But that's But I ended up leaving the university. I'm sorry. But, but that so, was you know, So I was skeptical from the beginning. I, I knew Pfizer. I, I didn't trust them because I know how they manipulated the data with Lipitor. Mm-hmm. I remember the Tamiflu scandal, interesting you mentioned that, mm-hmm. where the, uh, I believe it was Roche was trying to sell Tamiflu to the British government in preparation for, I think it was swine flu, back in the uh, mid-2000s, and a huge number of pounds were at stake. And I, the Cochrane group and others said, well, you know, we're not so sure that this drug is worth it, frankly. Let's see the source data. Well, the company didn't give it to them. They had to litigate for three years, and to their credit, British Medical Journal, which, which has been on the right side of this debate as well, was involved in that litigation. Peter Doshi, Fiona Godley, and I give them full credit. After three years, they did get the source data through courts, and it turned out, of course, it was a bust. They, it, the drug didn't work as advertised. It was much more toxic than they let on. We should have the source data for Pfizer, Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it's going to show the same issue. Yeah, it'll be it too late. Work, though. and it's toxic. It's, it's a little bit
0: like to... the a little bit like the Biden mandates. You know, it gets put up, even if it doesn't have backing, in order so the people will do it. I I think when people talk about the science um, has spoken, um, I think it's actually a fair amount of the political science um, <laughs> rather than the science science uh, or the factual science or whatever. Um, but you know, I. I it's it's a it's a, a difficult thing um you know one of my little pet subjects is that the actual virus that's been uncovered by this virus not to say that covid is not an actual virus i do think it is an actual virus i don't think it's i don't think it's ebola i don't think it's um hiv aerosolized um or something which would be genuinely dangerous um but the actual virus is, is showing the fault lines in our society um so it, it, the good news is a little bit like um that movie uh um, where where Leo DiCaprio uh, you know does th- you know fakes being an airline pilot is that any of these hackers uh, catch me if you can I think it was yeah um, yeah, yeah you know hackers uh, have uh, you know value you know they're th- they're basically thieves in a way and they're trying to get into your bank accounts they're trying to figure out you know gaming and scheming and scamming one situation or another but the value of them is that b- over time presumably it it, it Big, you know, shows you better ways to fortify your bank accounts or your this and that. You know, I think I think that COVID-19 has been an incredible canary uh, or in the coal mine kind of syndrome for governments. You know, I think the huge, you know, I, people always thought, oh, I'll go to New Zealand if something happens. I'll go to Australia if something happens here, you know, because those are safe places far away. But, you know, they have problems because they're susceptible to, uh, you know, basically – kind of like overpowering i hate to use the word but fascistic aspects of government control fascism is the is frankly the fasces is the roman um you know sign of power is a bunch of bundle of sticks put right. together in a fascia um yeah. like we say fasciitis and so forth in, in the body that's a bundle of 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 um ligaments or tendons whatever mm-hmm. but but uh you know, so so fascism in, in, in the political sense is the conjoining of government with industry. Correct. So they they are merged together with singular purpose. And basically it's a cronyistic aspect where you're taking away the competitive aspects and or so the bubbling of good ideas. And you're pre uh, anointing them on certain parts of society. So Siemens did very well in Nazi Germany because they were part of the government in a sense. And so contracts weren't bid out, and Siemens could do slave labor. They could make money in, in, in illicit ways, but the government benefited because they were getting pay- kickbacks, and they had their friends. You know, so so it's kind of a, a an ally aspect, and alliances are important, but they're not necessarily all beneficial to the underlings, the people. Um, so how has you know how has COVID? 19, um, I don't know, shown fault lines for you. And insofar as it has, what, what does one do about it? What have you done about it?
1: Well, the, the major fault line for me has been the medical profession. The medical response to COVID-19, for the most part, was abysmal. And for, to a large extent, it's because the official response was so poor and doctors followed that guideline, the guideline from the NIH, how to treat covid Send your patient home. Wait until they can't breathe. Then you have them go to the emergency <laughs> yeah, I don't want
0: to forget that, that you know, the, the poster boy for, for fabulous COVID treatment, uh, ex-governor Cuomo from New York, you know, he he recycled uh, patients from the hospital back into the nursing homes with COVID uh, because he wanted, didn't want to give Donald Trump credit for the USS Comfort sitting in, in uh, New York Harbor uh, or using the Javits Center um also named for republican i guess um but you know so so this wasn't science this was uh i'm sure there's a great greek word for it it's hubris i guess um but you know it, it that's not science and and a lot of things that were you know bequeathed to science are just what what people were doing and after the fact they're like oh we do, we're doing this because it's science i mean they the, the the you know generations of do wear a mask don't wear a mask don't do you know, which type have changed over time. Um, And the whole panoply of different approaches hasn't really led across the world, different country by country, to much difference in outcomes. Um, But, uh, you know, so
1: go ahead. My my take on the Cuomo saga, as someone who witnessed it up close and personal in New York, working at Bellevue Hospital during the peak of the pandemic, seeing these nursing home patients coming in and dying, uh, was that it was part of an Overall plan uh, to, reduce hmm? to reduce Medicare burden. To
0: reduce Medicare burden.
1: No, no. I believe first of all he wasn't the only one, and that's what led me to be suspicious about it. The other, Repu- the other Democrat governors of the blue states—Pennsylvania, yeah,
0: New Jersey, and I, th- and I believe, to and Michigan,
1: also. et cetera—and also other countries did it. The UK, Italy, among two that I that I know for sure did it. So to me, that smacks of following. What's the object? Together. It's the same playbook. And why? Because they knew it would push the death rate up and they needed deaths to make this pandemic pop.
0: So we, you know, we, uh, you know, th- these, say, blue state governors, I, I, th- I think there was a secondary gain uh, to, you know, get rid of the real virus, in their view, Donald Trump. Uh, I don't. See them that way, but they did, and I think they were very, very, very successful in you know making mail-in ballots. We already had absentee absentee ballots. We didn't need mail-in ballots. If you wanted an absentee ballot, you just asked for it. But having this kind of push, literally, you know, to have absentee ballots thrown at you. But what did Italy have it? What 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 stake did they have? They didn't have to get rid of Donald Trump, and, and UK didn't. So why right. would there be you know a coincidence in this? I mean, I I try not to be a conspiracy guy. Uh, what's your thought about that, and what, was, what would be the goal, and what would well, be the playbook?
1: So what it's what I just said. Uh, and, and, of course, it's deductive reasoning, which doctors are known to use or used to be known to, to mm-hmm. use. Where when I see a pattern, why did all these leaders do the same horrific thing, which is clearly a mistake? Anybody would, would recognize that this is a mistake. So do you why know where they got the it? Where, where did
0: they get the idea? I think
1: they got it from the WHO. What, was the that, is there, is there the a world, paper trail or anything? The World we, Economic Forum. I would love to. I would love there to be one. I don't think we'll find one, but okay, to so, me, it, it's a presumption because they needed a certain death count, or the the whole pandemic would have not been a pandemic.
0: Yeah, and I I I, I borrow this from Andrew Claven, but you know, so insofar as I I see conspiracies, I I see them as conspiracies of interests. So a conspiracy. Uh, you know, I, I initially I thought the word had something to do with piracy, uh, conspiracy, but it actually means conspiracy. Spiros is to breathe. So conspiracy is to breathe together. So everything kind of breathing together and you're inhaling the same fumes or the same, uh, you know, dope or whatever, and you're all moving in the same direction, so forth. Uh, but I, I don't, I don't think, I, I don't, I'm not deeply enough into this uh, to think that everyone spontaneously is reading from the same playbook. I do think that there is conspiracy of interest where people want a certain end goal and they wind up having the same means from place to place because they all see the goal as the same. I think in the United States, you, you notice the vast difference between the red States and the blue States, both in treatment and, and, and the, 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 the hospital, the um, nursing home deaths and all that kind of stuff, far worse in New York than Florida, for instance. And the, you know, New York and Florida have almost identical populations. Obviously Florida skews far older. I have the, the, you know, God's, uh, uh, waiting room uh, there, um, but Florida did better overall with you know all the the parameters of of um, COVID deaths and so forth. They did better, um, but uh, you know I, I do think that that you know people wound up doing certain of the same things because that was part of their team approach. So the the blue governors, whether it's Michigan, Illinois, Pennsylvania, New York, you know across the board, they did all pretty much all the same stuff, but different from the red states, aside from our own Massachusetts, who's pretty, you know, kind of purple. Um, but, you know, the red states, the southern states, they universally did the same with less and they came up with better uh, or equivalent results. So, you know, the virus going to virus the way I look at it and then people do people things. Um, but there hasn't been really a meeting of it. Um, but I, I just I, I know you're part of uh, America's uh, frontline physicians. Is that right?
1: doctors, um,
0: yeah. Right. I'm sorry. Can you tell us uh, what has been going on with that? What what are your what do you see as your role? And I know you've been you um, you've partnered with uh, Dr. Ryan Cole, whom I admire as well. Uh, can you tell me what's going on with that? And what are the hopes? And what are your what are your basic thrusts? And what do you, what's your recommendation for our listeners?
1: Well, AFLDS was started uh, in 2020 by Dr. Simone Gold, and Simone Gold, I started to follow very early on, because I saw some videos that she had done. She is a, was an emergency room physician, experienced, also a lawyer, which I did not know at the time, but she saw initially that the censorship of doctors and the, the prohibitions against using generic safe drugs like hydroxychloroquine uh, to treat early COVID were unprecedented and frankly illegal, illegal and outrageous. Doctors have never before been prevented from using safe generic drugs off label. I,
0: I know that's a craziness. I, it I just, is. it drives me nuts.
1: Well, it's not crazy, it was intentional so that they would create the need for emergency use authorization. Yeah. Of the I stroke. I think
0: if you're looking at the fingerprints on this, that will be, you know, one of the more interesting facts because we've used off, you know, drugs off label forever. You know, for you know, taking aspirin for stroke prote- prevention, heart attack prevention was off label. Um it was a good idea and it worked and so forth. Um you know, but and and whether I I you know, the data whether ivermectin is the right thing or not is is somewhat irrelevant. Ivermectin had been used as antiviral before COVID ever showed up. And there's sure. all kinds of wonderful p- papers on it and whatnot. But, you know, whether it works or not is another question. But it's, it was, I think, generic. It was approved, FDA approved. It's reasonably safe. And then it got be called ho- horse dewormer, which is right. just right. ludicrous. Sure.
1: It was all about pushing the shots and ultimately the, the vax passports, which, which are a big part of the plan as well. And everything that we said uh, back then, and Simone Gold said as well, have happened, right? We got marginalized and 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 labeled as conspiracy nuts. But everything that we were talking about has has come to pass. Yeah, very so, obvious, right?
0: Yeah. So, so, so to, today, today, up... science is yesterday's, you know, <laughs> conspiracy theory.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So AFLDS was, I think, a key organization in that they uh, pushed back it very early on, and uh, without it, I think that they might have just rolled over because rolled over us because who's the they? Oh. Uh, well, the big pharma, uh, the medical industrial complex, right. uh, the World Economic Forum, these yeah. people who are pushing this whole thing would have just rolled over us because we were disorganized and we, we couldn't really resist. And People went along people were terrified. You know, they had this media campaign yeah. that terrorized everybody with the death counts and then the case counts. Yeah. Right. And no, the, I the think I think we're finding out that papers. those
0: those were those were um, uh over what's the word i'm looking for um they were they were set high um there have been huge incentives financially for hospitals to get that diagnosis they get paid yeah. better people eliminate their deductibles if it's a covid case i i know we you know i think even rochelle walensky who's from newton where i live now um she's come out with you know the, the agreement essentially that maybe only you know in her view you know i think 40% of the diagnoses are are genuinely uh deaths are from covid rather than with covid uh it's been kind of a a, a bleep show uh, right from the get go because you know humans align with incentives and uh you know i think a lot you know you know unintended consequences uh, pay, road to hell paved with good intentions you know we had some good intentions about doing this full, full bore um uh, investigation of our, our, our treatment for COVID. Uh, but clearly it's had a lot of us, you know, kind of cruel side effects. And one of them is the exaggeration of COVID as an illness within the hospitals. I'm just going to bring up one anecdote on a personal basis. I have a, uh, you may not believe this, but I have a friend, um, and, uh, you know, this friend is a physician. He's pretty prominent and we've gone, we go back a long way. And, uh, he had COVID-19, the original COVID-19 early on, because he has an active practice and he sees a lot of kids, um, and so I said, uh, "Friend, you know, so now you can stop wearing a mask." And uh, he said, "Oh, I'm not sure we're ready for that yet." I'm like, "What do you mean? Do you think you could get COVID nineteen again?" He says, "No, absolutely not. I've had it. I've got full immunity, natural immunity, better." So for that, this is before the vaccines had come out. I said, "Well, do you think?" that you can give it to anybody else. You think you can catch it from anybody else? No, I can't catch it from anybody else. I can't give it to anybody else. I'm completely done with COVID-19. I can never get it again. I, it wasn't that bad. He's a healthy guy, all that kind of stuff. I said, well, why wouldn't you take off the mask then? Wouldn't it be a good message for your young patients, he's seeing kids, um, to, to know that there's a, a, a an end after this? He says, well, you know, that's not really where we are yet. I'm like, who's we? And what he meant was, and he he said this explicitly, is like politically, it's not the, the the left is not ready to take their foot off the gas pedal, because they haven't gotten rid of Donald Trump yet. This is before the election, and so you know his his decision was not the science; it was the political science, and that was the political calculus. Which I think is a, you know, I think people are allowed to consider those things, but there has to be a disclaimer. You know, it has to be some mention of why you're doing that and what you have in mind. I don't know. Have you have you had experiences of that sort?
1: I have. You know, it's interesting. You bring up the the political aspect. One of the most per, uh, perceptive articles I read early on, I think it was in April of 2020, by Angela Codavia called "The yep. COVID Coup." Did you see that? About I've how...
0: seen I've seen work under that yeah. name.
1: Yeah, where where how this whole thing a big part of it was to get rid of Trump and they did it and they were very successful. Unfortunately, Donald Trump himself played into it in that he allowed, he went along. Yeah. With well, they, they, they've been policies. looking,
0: they, they were looking for cracks and fissures all in the whole Russiagate thing. I mean, you know, I respect the guy for having stood up so well to so much prodding. agree. And you can see as, as came out this week, you know, Hillary yeah, you know, continued bugging him like little, not just, not just I mean literally bugging him because I think I think she can bug a lot of people but but you know I mean clandestinely surveilled him uh for a long time thereafter right um and that's only just getting out in the news now but not even in the news news but we only have about 10 minutes left so I'd like to you know yield the floor I'm gonna zip it for a little bit which is a challenge for me um but I wanted you to tell us uh, what you've done, what you've accomplished, what you recommend for people in our audience to um, think about, to read, uh, to do as a, as a means to an end and, and you know, to make the, you know, our world better and more responsive to actual human needs.
1: Well, that's a pretty broad topic left me there, but I think that my, my focus- F- in- Fix
0: the world, you have five minutes.
1: <laughs> yeah, my, my, my focus in this debate uh, over COVID and in the reaction to COVID has been on the medical response, which I think was so poor. And I, I, I attribute a lot of it to the fact that doctors are no longer financially independent. Back in the days when I first started to practice, most were, most had independent practices that were paid by their patient and were paid by their patients in one way or another. But they eventually gave that up and, and most are now salaried, working for some corporation or some hospital. So they don't have latitude. If the, if the corporation if the hospital tells you give remdesivir you either give it or you're gone and mm-hmm. you're easily replaced so yep. you know doctors have become commodities and it's very sad to see the degradation of the profession but also we gave it up right we allowed others to dictate our fees and to control yeah. us that way
0: well it's n- no no call no you know nights and weekends without call
1: yeah that's right so you you have a nice cushy job. And But the bottom line is you have to do what they tell you to do. You can't be autonomous. You can't practice what you consider to be good medicine. But then again, many of them consider following the guidelines to be good medicine. And mm-hmm. that is really a bad state of affairs. Yeah, I mean, it, it,
0: could be, it could be that certain guidelines coincide with reality, no doubt. But
1: I, Not for I don't everyone. like Yeah. Not for I, everyone. Well, that's a good point. That right. a One good point. size fits all is going to harm a lot of people. And that's what we're seeing. We're witnessing a one-size-fits-all approach that is killing, literally killing people. And everybody in the hospital gets remdesivir. Remdesivir is a piece of crap. Everybody knows it is. Mm -hmm. Uh, Fauci pushed it through uh, for Gilead. Uh, The the study that he used to, to justify it was barely competent, showed maybe a couple of days shortened hospital stay, no effect on mortality. But everybody gets it. We know it's toxic as hell, causes kidney and liver damage. Uh, but that is the protocol. That's the standard of care. And if this is where medicine is right now, I'm ashamed of the profession, frankly. And I think we really have to root it out, fix it. All right. The- so,
0: so how and what can, what can people who are in the audience, not physicians, not in the medical field, what's our obligation? What's our role?
1: Try to stay out of the hospital. Seek. <laughs> stay healthy. Follow, you know, eat well, right? Don't eat junk food. Don't eat sugar. Don't eat vegetable oil. Keep yourself healthy. Get out in the sun. Get vitamin D. Uh, exercise. Lose your weight. Lose that 30 or 40 pounds that most of you gained. Okay, but what can
0: they do to help you? And what they what can they do to help the uh, corporatization of medicine?
1: AFLDS.org. Has so a lot say it of- again. AFLDS.org, America's Frontline Doctors. AAPsonline.org is another excellent site, excellent organization, the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, which I'm a member. Uh, and find a physician who is outside the system who will treat you as an individual and take care yeah. of you uh, and not have financial conflicts of interest in so doing. Yeah. And we're, uh, AFLDS is actually starting to uh, get into putting out clinics where that sort of medicine is going to be practiced free of uh, pharmaceutical? Yeah, no, it's a funny interest. thing.
0: It's a little bit like the public school system. You know, we pay for the public school system. I mean, I own a house and and uh, <clears throat> my kids went through it. But you kind of get what they give you, and if you want something different, a little bit more tailored to your kids, or you're not happy with what you're getting, um, you have to pay extra and go outside the system. So there, you know, you. Le- <laughs> It's a tricky. As long as you can afford it, it, it works OK. Um, you know, a little bit like to your teaching point, uh, my son took Chinese in the public uh, school system and um, and it was all wrote. It was literally from Chinese nationals uh, who were here and they spoke no English and they were just re- repetition, repetition, you know, just say the same words. And that was that. We went at that point. We went to look at a private school locally, and he sat in on the Chinese class there. And it was completely different. People were in groups. They were working on problems. They had to, you know, compete against each other. They made songs in Chinese. It was a totally. My son was like, he was like blown away by the difference. And that, and he had already come to, you know, hate the China, you know, that style of teaching. But I, I'm wondering, you know, is there a way to make a, a different type of medical school?
1: Well, the public school system is a very good analogy to the public health system. The the government-run health system, government corporate-slash-health system, is very similar to the public education system. It's bureaucratized. Uh, The only thing that they're lacking at this point is unions, but it's really very uh, similar in that everything is one-size-fits-all. all you got to follow the guidelines. you got to follow the the official textbooks, et cetera, you know, they tell you to teach critical race theory. You better teach it, right? That's sort yep. of thing. So yep. it's, it's very similar. And the, the solution is privatize, get out into private yep. medical practice. There are still doctors who are setting up private practices. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're going third party free, which I think is the only way you can make it work.
0: Yeah. Well, let like the private reason. schools. I mean, it, it can work for the physicians and it can work for those patients who can see them, but there are a lot of people who are just not going to be able to afford that. And so that's, you know, it would be nice if, you know, we could, you know, kind of steer this huge cruise ship, which is heading into an iceberg uh, away. You know, I don't know if there's time and whatnot. Uh, then I think there's uh, some asteroid, uh, movie, um, yeah, don't look now or something like that, which uh, intends for the opposite. No, don't look up, uh, which intends, it, the, the, I, I gather it's funny and I haven't seen it. Um, but I, but you know, there are, I don't agree with necessarily the underlying political sentiment, but I think there is some uh, you know, kind of cogent aspect to it. Um, so closing, closing words, we have about uh, a minute or two left, uh, closing statement.
1: Well, medicine has gone off the rails and I think that that is a pressing problem because do- patients now know this because they've experienced the, the abdication of their own physician and they, will, they won't get over it lightly easily. And it's, it's our opportunity to try to fix the system. And to do that, we're going to have to go outside and go private and go, uh, go away from the pharma model of care, which is based on guidelines and treating risk factors as as opposed to real diseases. Uh, as you mentioned before with hypertension, it's just like, you know, it's a number you're treating numbers instead of people. We have to get away from that model, make people healthy, not just manage their disease, right? Make them healthy again. That's the model we, sh- we have to follow. And to do that, you have to go back to basic science and get away from the pseudoscience of evidence-based medicine.
0: All right, perfect. Well, thank you so much, Richard. Uh, so this is Dr. Richard Amerling and your organizations one last time.
1: America's Frontline Doctors, AFLDS.org and the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, AAPSONline.org. And you can find stuff that I've written there and lots of other useful information.
0: Okay, so I'm going to end with one last shameless self-promotion. My book, Overturning Zika, is uh, coming out in the next couple of weeks. Uh, If you're interested in any pre-publication, please let me know. Um, And if you can help me uh, promote it, help me, you know, let me know. And uh, I have an article coming out in the American Journal of Medicine in July, a commentary piece on Uh, the the disappearance of Zika and basically debunking a lot of the foundational aspects, which are in line uh, somewhat with with what Dr. Amerling has said. So I'm going to call it uh, an evening. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, Please share this widely. Uh, Let us know, like the uh, page, and uh, give us feedback. Thank you so much.